Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Hey, really great to be here with Crosspoint. I was, I was here at your first service back in 2010, and I've had the opportunity to come and speak. Uh, maybe a few of you have remembered me every couple of years. We've been invited to come and be part of uh, this gathering, and it's really great to be here. And, and what a journey you're on as a church, hey? Well, the past, the past year, year and a half, here you are meeting in this facility that uh, formerly was Beverly Alliance Church. And as a district office person, whatever that means, we're just really grateful that the gospel continues to shine forth in this part of the city. And it is no ordinary part of the city, is it? It's, it's so diverse, uh, whether it's economically or, or ethnically or linguistically and so forth. And uh, what, what a great treat it is to be here in this facility. And uh, some of you were part of the Beverly Church, and now you're part of this church. And really, Jesus only knows one church, and that's his bride, and that's his kids. So really, great, really grateful to be here. If you've got a Bible, paper or otherwise, you can turn to it. Book of 1 John. If you don't know where it is, it's right before 2 John. And I've got two teenage boys, and they just be like, Dad, those are dad jokes. Yeah, but you know, I, I turned 50 a couple days ago, so I can, I can do that. And if you mock me, then it's ageism, and so we're not going to go there. You know, speaking of getting older, I turned 50 here this past week, and you should give me applause for that. I made it to half century. And I was realizing a few months ago that the font in my previous preaching Bible was getting smaller. And so I ordered a new Bible a few months ago, and I love this Bible. It still smells like a catcher's mitt, <laughs> which is evidence in and of itself that baseball is God's favorite sport on the planet. Not, not the NBA. Any NBA fans here? Yeah? Guess where I was when the Raptors won? Young and Dundas, Toronto. It was crazy. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, NBA and Young and Dundas, but... Anyways, this Bible is so new, when I open it, some of the pages still crinkle. And it's a reminder, I haven't actually read Numbers chapter 7 from this new Bible. What does that have to do with the talk today? Not a whole lot. Let's, let, let me read a few verses out of 1 John here in a moment. Um, I, I saw in your, your offering envelope here that the mission of, of Crosspoint simply says this, helping people find their way back to God. Helping people find their way back to God. And in the text we're going to look at here today, 1 John, I think there's a couple of pathways that are accessible to every person in this room. Regardless of where you find yourself in proximity to Jesus Christ this morning, there are three pathways here that are accessible to every single person. You know, some pathways to God come in the high moments and some in the ordinary moments. Does that make sense to you? There are those times where maybe it's a Friday night at camp or you're at a conference or you're in a worship gathering or something like that. And, and God seems to reveal himself in a dramatic way, in a way that is not so ordinary. There are three pathways here that are pretty ordinary. And in the last 1,500 years or so, most of the global church has followed what is called the liturgical calendar to one degree or another. 
And every church follows it to some degree. If you celebrate Christmas and Easter, which I know this church does for sure, and most do, you're following the liturgical calendar. And the liturgical calendar are the high days of the year. Of the, of the 365 days, there are times that are the high points where we meet with God. It starts with Advent, and then we move into Christmas, and then we have Epiphany, and eventually Lent. Remember Lent? I gave up moderation for, for Lent this past year. Some of you haven't got that yet. It's, it's my best joke I've got. And then we move to Easter. Post-Easter, we have... Pentecost and Ascension Sunday. And they all matter. Like, really, they all matter. These days, I, I've been enjoying celebrating Ascension Sunday because Ascension Sunday is when Jesus goes up into heaven and he is seated above all power, ruler, dominion, and authority. And Ephesians 2 says that you, a son or a daughter of the king, you're seated with him in those heavenly places. And you know what that means, don't you? That there's no darkness, there's no brokenness. There's no system of world thought that can stand against the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Yeah. He trumps all. And as Micah had said, these days I'm spending a lot of my time um, catalyzing renewal in the church. And, and there is a movement going on in Canada right now. It's not from the Alliance. It's not about the Alliance. Didn't start with us. Didn't end with us. Um, there are multiple streams of, of the church coming to discover the ancient things of who we really are in Christ. And that Jesus is way better than we know he is to be. That he brings lasting freedom. He transforms lives. In the last five years, we've seen over a thousand people get healed. And 98% and of them, Terry and I didn't pray for. But it's just, when the spirit is released in a room under the authority of Christ, Jesus does things that blow our mind. And so those are kind of the high times. But what about the ordinary time? In the liturgical calendar, you have your high months, starting with, with Advent, longing for more of God, and then it sort of ends with Pentecost, which is the birthing, the commissioning, the sending of the church. And then from wherever Pentecost is, sometime in May, all the way around, you have about six or seven months of what has been called now for centuries, ordinary time. Can we find God in the ordinary time? And this message is simply about that, finding God in the ordinary time. So, without any further ado, in 1 John, I'm going to start with chapter 2, uh, verse 5 and 6, and then we're going to rewind the tape, which some of you have no idea what that means, do you? <laughs> Told you I'm full of these dad jokes. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. Just full stop. John is saying that you can actually have a more complete, a more perfected experience of who Jesus is, of his love for you. And John knows what he's talking about, doesn't he? Does anyone know how John self-referred in the gospel that he wrote? Anyone? The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's pretty cocky. He's writing about all the disciples, and I don't think once he put the name John in there, I could be wrong on that, but he would simply refer to himself as the one that Jesus loved. And it wasn't, it wasn't arrogant, but he was so convinced that he was loved by God. Could you imagine waking up every day of your life, and among the first thoughts you have, aside from, I need a cup of coffee, is, I'm loved by God. Would that not change a life? I kind of felt the love when you were all applauding here. 
but to feel the love and the applauding of God. John was the one who, on the night Jesus was betrayed, John's head was leaning against Jesus. He had that kind of intimacy. When Jesus, in his humanity, was transfigured, his divine glory was revealed on what we've come to know as the Mount of Transfiguration. Who was there? There's only three disciples there. It was John. You could argue that of all the apostles, John understood the depth and the personal experience of being loved by God. And in a room this size, I am convinced there's probably more than a few of us here that have not yet tasted deeply the transforming love of God. So would you pray with me? Because I can't reveal this to you, but the Spirit of Jesus can, and he does. So come Holy Spirit, and you can, in your own hearts, friends, just say under your own breath, amen to what I'm about to pray. Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus to us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you reveal the love of the Father to we, your children? And Holy Spirit, if anyone in this room does not yet know you, and, and the Father through faith in Christ, would you show them your pathway for them? I pray in Jesus' name. So back in 1 John chapter 2, anyone who obeys his word, love for God, is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. This is where I want to spring off of. If you want to, whoever claims to live in Christ must live as Jesus did. And there are three ways that we can see this. I want to read now 1 John 1, 1, when John says, That which from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, our hands have touched concerning this, we proclaim concerning the word of life. John right here is immediately saying, We've seen Jesus, we've touched him, we've heard him, we've walked with him, we've experienced him. And he goes on then, and we proclaim to you, verse 3, what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John is saying we have seen Jesus deeply and it is possible for you to know him deeply as well. So if we have time, and it's largely up to me, not you, if we have time, we have, I'm going to walk through four ways that we can know Jesus in the common time may only get through three. But the first one is simply this, in choosing humility. In choosing humility. Now, in Philippians 2.8, you don't have to turn there, but that's that incredible passage that talks about what Jesus, the anointed one, who in his spirit-anointed humanity, he took the very nature of a servant. He became like a human. He subjected himself to death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ is the incredible model of choosing humility. And so where do we see this in 1 John? John says in verse 5 of chapter 1, This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. If you want to know God in the ordinary time of life, when there doesn't seem to be any ecstatic experience of him in the moment, here is one pathway that is a guarantee pathway to knowing more of him. And it is simply choosing humility. Humility isn't looking down on yourself. And humility isn't thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to. Godly humility could be defined simply as this. Viewing yourself no better and no worse than your heavenly father views you. And it's not the absence of confidence. Jesus is the emblem of humility. And did he have confidence? He had tons of confidence. But it wasn't arrogance. Simply humility. You know, God is, is, is not disturbed when you sin. I know that sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? Your, your sin does not disturb God. Your, your sinfulness, your, your brokenness does not make him wring his hands. What this passage says is that if we claim to be without sin, if we claim to be without brokenness, and pretend like we're free of that and claim to walk in the light, we are deceived. God is disturbed by that. Now, most of us growing up, and psychologists know this, most of us when we're growing up, around the ages of three, four, and five, we start, we start to develop um, what you could call as self-awareness. And that's one of the reasons we love kids so much is because they lack self-awareness and they'll just say things i mean they're just they're just so incredibly cute but then they start to develop self-awareness and they start to realize oh if i say this i get affirmation if i make a joke i get affirmation if i do good things i get affirmation and so we we do that as kids and then we move into to adolescence and it becomes more ingrained and so sometimes when we exit adolescence, uh, a lot of adults have regret of the personality they have chosen. The person who got lots of affirmation because he or she was the funny guy or the funny gal finds that it's hard to be serious or for people to take them seriously. Or the person who received affirmation because they just worked hard, worked hard, has some regret because perhaps they never learned how to play well. Are you following me? And then we transfer that to our view of God. Oh, God wants me to be, and then we draw a box around ourselves, And we try to fulfill that ideal. And that ideal is not walking in humility. To walk in humility before God is to walk no greater than we are and no less than we are. And what John says, if you want to experience a more complete experience of the love of God, come to him as you are. Not as your prettied up self. Not as the self you wish you were. I forget who wrote, I think it was David Benner, 
could be, I could be misquoting it. Someone else. There are three versions of you. The one that you wish you are, the one that others see you to be, and the one that God sees you are. And here's the truth about who you really are. You're way worse than you know. <laughs> that wasn't a dad joke. No, it's true, isn't it? It's true. So I'm a minister. I'm an ordained minister. And so, you know, I've publicly given my life to serving the Lord and preaching of the word. Here, here's where my brokenness shows up. Some of my motivation for wanting to serve God is entirely selfish. I'm way worse than you know. If you only knew, maybe Rob wouldn't have invited me to preach this weekend. No, we're way worse than we are, but that's, that's the bad news. The good news is God desperately loves the person whom you really are, even though you're way worse than you know yourself to be. We've got to come into the light in authentic humility. Um, if you read John's writings, you know he wrote... John 1, 2, and 3, and the, um, the Gospel of John. And he loves to use metaphor. So the Gospel of John, it's the fourth gospel, fourth book in the New Testament. He uses um, the metaphor of water an awful lot, changing water into wine. It's just replete all the way through the gospel. And here in, in the book of 1 John, he uses the metaphors of light and of love. God is light. And then a few chapters later, God is love. If you want to experience the love of God in your life, you need to come into his light. Are you following me? And you cannot pretend. If you pretend to be in the light, but you're not really in the light, then we are merely self-deceived. John 12, 24, same author, says this, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The invitation in the ordinary time, when God perhaps does not seem palpable and tangible in your life, is simply this, to come and die. And to invite him to give you eyes to see yourself as he sees you. So, okay, here's the practicum. If you want to follow along, if, you're not, if your eyes are not already closed and you're fast asleep, that was a joke. So you opened your eyes. Did he just see me sleeping? <laughs> no, seriously, here's the practicum. If, if you want, just for a moment, close your eyes. The Spirit is here. He's really good at... Um, he's, he's infinitely good at revealing perfect truth to us. So I'm going to give you a question to ask him, if you want. There's no obligation here. Here's a question. And I want you to listen to the answer you, you may hear in your mind. Spirit of God, do I tend to view myself greater than I am or less than I am? Do I have an inflated view of myself or a deflated view of myself? And don't wait long. You should, for most of us, I think you'll, you'll know the answer in three to five seconds. Okay, you can open your eyes now. Here, here's the, the homework for you. If, if you would take, if you would choose this mission... If you have an inflated view of yourself, a greater view of yourself, that's pride. To have a deeper experience of the love of God, you bring your pride into the light. And you say, this is true of me, Jesus. I tend to view myself greater than I am. You bring your brokenness in. And if you have a deflated view of yourself, it's a similar pathway. 
you bring your brokenness before him. And for many of us, pride or, or deflation, they have similar origins of wounds and lies that we've believed in our past. And it become ingrained in our identity. Okay, that's the first one. Choosing humility. God already sees who you really are. You know, another way, another way to put this before I move on. God does not love your pretend self. You know, we, we talk about in the church, God loves you. You know, for God so loved the world. God loves you. And we say this. But I, I think it's helpful to get really specific on what we mean when we say God loves you. He does not love the you that you wish you were. That's your pretend self. It's a figment of your imagination. Your pretend self does not exist. It's an illusion in your mind. God does not love your pretend self. God loves the real you, the broken you. And, and here in 1 John, it, it says this. It doesn't say that if we come to Jesus and we have no sin, we are loved. No, it says if we claim to be without sin, but yet claim to walk in him, we're deceived. God loves the you who, that is broken right now. And so may we choose humility and to bring even the brokenness into the light. And he'll do the transforming. But until we do, we rob him of access to those places. Okay. Secondly, second pathway in common time to experience more of the presence of God, to experience more of the love of the Father that is for you, is to simply do this, to embrace assigned suffering. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Embrace suffering. Well, James talks about this, and you know, there was a time in my life where I wanted to punch James. Because you've, you've read James 1, perhaps. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials and temptations of many kind. James, come here. we got to talk. You're talking crazy. And, and he goes on, doesn't he, in James 1? Because the testing of your faith will produce this, 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 this. So eventually, so you are mature and complete and not lacking anything. Well, there, there it is. Okay, James, I can't punch you. Or what about Hebrews 12? Jesus who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He scorned the shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. So where am I, where am I finding this here? Well, let's take a look at 1 John 2, 1 and 2. <clears throat> My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, you may say, Balzer, where is suffering in there? Well, just read it in context, because a few verses later, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So how did Jesus live? Jesus was obedient to suffering. Jesus was obedient to death, even death on the cross. It was a sign to him. And he embraced it. And here it says that we have an advocate. So God's holiness condemns everybody. It's, it's, not that, it's not that God has an intrinsic nature of condemnation. But his holiness is so remote from who we are after the fall. That his holiness condemns us. But his love for us even transcends 
that implicit condemnation. That's why he sends Jesus, who now becomes your advocate. So that if you know Jesus Christ, you can every day of your life, not just when you get to heaven, because heaven is less so a destination after death and is more so a presence of the creator whom you walk in with every day of your life. But every day you say, the advocate is the one who stands before me. And the advocate, Jesus Christ, who through his suffering has paid my penalty. Do you know, can you think of another time when John uses advocate? It's in John chapter 14, and Jesus is speaking, and he's speaking about the Holy Spirit who's about to come. And Jesus says, I will send to you another advocate. Oh, wait a minute, there's two advocates. There's two advocates. Well, there's actually a third, because in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. He was advocating for your and my lostness. So that's, that's a pretty good trilogy, trinity of individuals who were advocating for you and for me. That's the entire trinity. And how did that advocation get set up? By Jesus embracing his assigned suffering. So here's the deal. A servant is not greater than his master. And I'm not, I'm going to make a comment here, and I'm not, I'm not making commentary on the teaching in this church, but just simply the teaching in North American evangelicalism. We have a real lousy theology of suffering. And it comes out of our consumer society, because all the commercialism, etc., is um, underneath it all is you don't need to suffer. Wear Birkenstocks. You don't need to suffer. Go on this vacation. It's, it's a kind of a hedonistic, narcissistic approach. But core to the Christian faith is suffering. And you, who are a servant, is not greater than the master. And did you know that Christ's afflictions are lacking? Some of you, if you're paying close attention, you may have said, what is he talking about? Do you realize that the work that Jesus did on the cross is, is insufficient? Sounds scary when I even say it. But go with me to Colossians. I'm only quoting scripture. So before you call me a, her a heretic, go to Colossians 1.24. Oh, that's Philippians. No wonder I can't find it. <laughs> This is what Paul says in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Paul says it right here. That there is something lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body which is the church. So here's what's going on. Christ's afflictions are sufficient for the atonement of sin. Like, yes and amen. But in terms of the redemptive work of God in the world, in this part of Edmonton, in terms of the transformation of global societies, so that the kingdom of God can come into every facet of life. And the Bible says the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And this is God's intention. That every, every sphere of society, uh, in every society, would be touched and Christ's afflictions on the cross are insufficient for that. And it says, which is his body, the church. Here is how it is insufficient. We need to join with Jesus in suffering. 
so that the world can be redeemed. It's not that Jesus didn't do enough at the cross. No, he defeated sin and death. And now he says, you are my body. And now body of Christ, as the father assigns you suffering as part of the mission of God, embrace the suffering. So at some point you have to tell the story or maybe some of this doesn't make good sense. So maybe a few of your pastors know that our district office, we have a team of about 15, is going through a revolution. Um, we haven't really done a, a, a significant overhaul of how we serve our churches in 15 years. And so there is not a role in our office that's staying the same. And using the musical chair analogy, you know, we've all been wondering, when the music stops, once we figure out how we're going to reorganize, how we can best serve and resource and equip our churches, will there be a chair for me when the music stops? And I... Um, applied for a, a role, and I'm now in that role, but the interview was at the end of uh, this past April. And so I, I interviewed. I, w I was interviewed, sent in an application form and all the, these sorts of things. And, you know, if, if, I hadn't, if I didn't get this role, I don't know what my future would be. How am I going to pay my mortgage? How am I going to live? All of those sorts of things that we all face from time to time. And... After the interview, I was told by our district superintendent who was in the interview that you're not going to hear from us for three or four days. So those three or four days were pretty dynamic in my heart, as you could well imagine. Many of you have lived in this before. You really want something, but you don't know what it is. And, and I was anxious, and I was worried, and my mind was spinning. And one morning, I was up at about 4.30. And by the way, I spent the month of April in this passage that we're in right here in 1 John chapter 1 and part of chapter 2. And I woke up at 4.30 in the morning and I was on my, literally like prostrate on my face and saying, oh God, I am so worried. I want this so much. And I, I heard him whisper to me, not audibly, but in my spirit. He said, don't waste this suffering. Don't waste it. Some of you are in suffering of one kind or another. Right now, some of you are in physical suffering, emotional suffering, relational suffering. For me, this wasn't large-scale suffering. It was anxiety. But you can classify that as a form of suffering. And I heard God whisper to me as I was in this text, don't waste it. God does some of his best work in suffering. How does he do his best work? I didn't realize until I was in that place how attached I was to my preferred future. Are you following? Which may not be God's preferred future. It's in suffering that we find the crucible of faith. It is in suffering that we are purified. James 1, consider it pure joy when you suffer. Because it builds these things in your life. You cannot get there without suffering. Hear me clearly. God did not create suffering. There is nothing of him that creates suffering. But God will use the suffering that is not yet fully redeemed in the world until the church does her job. He will use suffering for his redemptive purposes. Suffering purifies so that the love of God is perfected. And John is communicating this here. Whoever wants to, um, whoever claims to live in Christ must live as Jesus did, including embracing any assigned suffering that is in our lives. I, I follow a, 
a devotional book called My Utmost for His Highest. And on April 27th, after that episode at 4.30 in the morning, I opened up this, this devotional book. And here's what the author, who wrote this in 1920, said. There is nothing easier than getting into a right relationship with God. I'm just going to read that again. There's nothing easier than getting into a right relationship with God, except when it is not God whom you want, but only what he gives. And here's the truth about people like you and me. Without embracing our assigned suffering, sometimes we can never differentiate between our longing for God and what he gives. Suffering purifies. So if you're in the place of suffering right now, of any kind, know this, that your Savior has walked pathways of suffering. And there are aspects of the redemptive, holy, and loving God that you can never experience until you invite him into your place of suffering. I know what I'm talking about. I've lost a child. And uh, a friend of mine just lost a 30-year-old son a few months ago. It, it's one of the most unnatural things. And his experience and mine, in those moments of profound suffering is that the presence of God is palpable, but only if you invite him into it. And that's what I mean by embracing it. Embracing assigned suffering isn't, all right, I'm going to wallow in this and just become like some self-afflicting destroyer. No, to embrace the assigned suffering is to embrace the savior of suffering into that moment. So for those of you who have some measure of suffering in your life right now, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes just for a moment. And I'm going to suggest a question that you can ask Jesus. Simply this, Lord Jesus, can you show me your presence in my suffering? Where are you? Where are you? And Holy Spirit, would you reveal Christ, the suffering servant, to your children? Okay, last but not least, try to move through this one quickly. Simple obedience. It's not rocket science, or as a friend of mine says, it's not rocket surgery. <laughs> Some of you may not get that. 1 John 2, verses 3 to 6, we know that we have come to know him when we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. So, along with you know, and it's not, a, it's not an overstatement to say we've seen over a thousand healings and we've seen uh, the church, we are seeing the church move more powerfully in prophetic ministry that doesn't fall into the ditches uh, that it can at times. And um, seeing people be healed deeply emotionally and being delivered, delivered from like the entrapment of the enemy's schemes, all kinds of things. And those are good. Yes and amen. The church needs all of these tools in her toolbox. But sometimes we don't need another prophetic word. Sometimes we don't need the high point. Sometimes we just simply need to obey God in the common time. Here's what happens when, when, the, when the Holy Spirit is, is convicting you or propelling you to obey in a certain way. 
And if, we, if we've developed patterns in our life of disobedience, of not choosing holiness, choosing obedience, we become rig, rigidly attached to default ways of behavior and thinking. Does that make sense? And we all have our own ways. We're all different, but we all have our own ways of struggling in obedience. And when we're gripped onto areas of especially persistent obedience or disobedience in our life, it's because it's... We, it's because we, are, we have convinced ourselves or allowed ourselves to be convinced that this thing over here is what's feeding our deep, deep hungers. And the world of psychology can help us here. Humanity in the frame of some would say we, we all need certain, we all have certain kinds of hungers, some needs. It's kind of like Maslow's pyramid, but maybe a little bit more condensed. So we all have a need of some measure of power and control. It's not a bad hunger not a bad hunger. But we all need some measure of control over our lives. And there's another, another hunger, and that is importance and significance. It's not, it's not a bad hunger. And then the third one is simply intimacy and delight. It's relationship. And so you can take this one for an example. The person who is, is um, embedded himself or herself with pornography, what do they really desire? They really desire, it could be intimacy, it could be sense of importance. Ah, oh, somebody, somebody is attracted to me. Or it could be control, whatever it is. But we get so attached to these things because they feed our hunger. It could be workaholism. You name it. Here's the challenge with obedience. Our, the, the pathway from disobedience, letting go of this, and, and grabbing onto obedience is always about 12 inches further than the span of our arms. And to let go of the thing that we have hung on to and to reach onto obedience is scary as hell. And I don't mean that as a swear. It, being in that in-between place, it's like we're free-falling. We've let go of our medication, our false medication, and we have not yet grabbed onto the Savior. And those of you here who are in that place and you're, you're waiting to be able to grab both, I got news for you. You can't grab both at the same time. And those of you who feel condemned because you're living patterns of persistent disobedience here in the ordinary time of your life, you are so much closer to the love of God than you know. As John says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Those of you who are struggling to let go and grab onto obedience, you are inches away in the ordinary time of life of a brand new experience of how much your father loves you. But he doesn't just want you to obey for obedience sake. He wants to deliver you from the false destructive medication of your deep hungers so that you can truly taste and see that God is good. And that you are way better than you know you are. But you can't get there. Unless you follow the simple pathway of obedience. Jesus did this, did he not? He was obedient to death. Even death on a cross. And obedience is simply the battleground of what or who will be the supplier of these three needs in our lives. Okay, so here's... Here's a practicum. Close your eyes if you, if you want. 
Lord Jesus, is there some way in my life that you are calling me to obedience as a means of knowing you? And just go with the first thought that comes to mind. It may be a smaller thought than you thought it would be. It may be a larger thought. Some of you are not surprised with what's, what he's telling you. Some of you are very surprised. That's your homework. That's, he, that's his invitation to you, to know him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And friends, walking with Jesus is far more simple than we sometimes make it out to be. He never brings complexity. The kingdom of God is not complex. The kingdom of God is a pathway of simplicity. So we're going to invite the worship team forward. And as they do, he's going to pray over us. So Holy Spirit, we thank you that you reveal Christ to the church. And Lord, I think it's the heart of, of most all of us in this room to walk as you walked, to know ourselves as you really see ourselves, to not waste suffering, and to be a people who are eager to obey because we know every step of obedience, active obedience, is diving into the deep end of the love of God. So as we move into this week, we invite you to remind us of what is true. And to show us he who is the way and the truth and the life. And all God's people said, amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.